thanks very much for inviting me. I want to speak about the Security Council as well legislator. Recently, it has been noted that the Security Council entered its legislative phase. And this is a somewhat revolutionary statement. Because so far, the perceived wisdom in international law for a very long time was that there is no international legislation going on. The states are the legislators, not any particular body that could impose rules on others. But we have seen recently developments at the United Nations with Security Council resolutions 1373 and 1540, which not just scholars, but also states itself have termed international legislation. Now, this conflict, as I said, with the perceived wisdom and also with the established jurisprudence. The International Appeals Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia in the famous Tadic case found that there is no international legislation. The only thing that there is is binding Security Council decisions. Now, the question I want to explore with you today is, is it possible in international law to have the Security Council legislate for the international community? Perhaps I should clarify first for you what I mean by international legislation. My colleagues have put forward a number of definitions. The one I would like to offer is that of general abstract obligations. General abstract obligations that are applicable basically to all states. Examples in recent times, I've said, are Resolution 1373, which concerned the criminalizing of the financing of terrorism but also the two famous Security Council resolutions 1422 and 1487, which concerned the exemption of U.S. service personnel from the International Criminal Court. And the latest one in the row is probably Resolution 1540, which concerned the criminalization of the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction by non-state entities. All these, for example, share the hallmarks of international legislation that they imposed general abstract obligations. Obligations not just with regard to one specific event, with regard to one specific group, but general obligations applicable to a large number of possible addressees. Now, the biggest problem with Security Council legislation is its legal basis. And there are several general objections to Security Council legislation these days. The first, of course, is the Security Council is a totally undemocratic institution, and I would agree with that. But that is not a valid objection, in my opinion, because... That applies basically to all the Security Council does. If you think about the imposition of sanctions, if you think about authorization of the use of force, that's an objection that can be leveled against all these measures, that they are imposed by a totally undemocratic body. Second objection. Security Council legislative acts are not part of the sources of international law, and thereby may not be applied, for example, by the International Court of Justice. Again, I beg to disagree. Security Council legislation is basically Security Council resolutions. Security Council resolutions are based on the UN Charter. So we might bring them into, or we may bring them into the framework of international law as what is called secondary treaty law. They emanate from the UN Charter, and that's where they derive their authority from. And, of course, the International Court of Justice had no problem applying Security Council resolutions in various of its judgments. Now, one of my colleagues has said, that's all right, but, you know, the Security Council is more a policeman 
than a legislature. And he's, again, probably right if we just look at what the Security Council does. But as lawyers, we are not so much concerned of what the Security Council has done so far, but we have to look at the text of the Charter to see what the Security Council can actually do on the basis of the Charter. And the Charter is totally open in that respect so that the Security Council may act as a legislator. Now, what is the basis of Security Council legislation in the Charter? And I've printed on the handout for you the two relevant articles, Article 39 and Article 41 of the Charter, because we are talking about general abstract obligations imposed on states. So we are within the area of Chapter 7 of the UN Charter. And there, of course, we have two requirements, or we have two conditions to act under Chapter 7. First of all, we need the Security Council to determine a threat to the peace, a breach to the peace, or an act of aggression, basically as a trigger mechanism. And then, if that is determined, the Security Council may take measures. So the two questions we are faced with, basically, are is there a enough threat to the peace for the Security Council to legislate? What does it mean, threat to the peace, in the context of legislation? My colleagues have argued that threat to the peace can only be specific incidents, not general phenomena like terrorism, the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction. But again, I beg to disagree here. I think threat to the peace first of all, in Article 39 of the Charter, is a political concept that leaves a very wide discretion to the Security Council to determine that. You might remember in 1994 when we saw the coup d'etat in Haiti and we had a several hundred boat peoples basically sailing towards the United States. And the Security Council found that there is a threat to international peace and security just because you have 500 refugees being basically approaching the shores of the United States and they might actually claim the international refugee status. So you see, you can expand this concept of threat to the peace quite far. And I would argue that peace originally was seen as a kind of formal concept that meant the absence of the use of force. But over time, we probably must more look for a substantive understanding of peace and threats to the peace. And basically, we could now say that all situations that may lead to the use of force are considered as threats to the peace. And we find some support for this in the actions of the Security Council and also in the actions of the UN General Assembly. Already in 1992, the Security Council, in a presidential statement, found that terrorism constitutes a threat to the peace. Similarly, the UN General Assembly found that the proliferation of weapon of mass destruction as such constitutes a threat to the peace. Now, we might also find some support for this wide interpretation of threats to the peace if we again look in the Charter. Article 1, paragraph 1 of the Charter speaks not just of removals of threats to the peace, but also of preventions of threat to the peace. So it envisages a much more proactive action of the Security Council that is normally seen in the traditional view. If you are with me that threats to the peace can also concern general phenomena, we must ask whether measures, measures in Article 41 of the Charter are obligations of an abstract and general character, or whether measures are these one-off actions that are called for by the Security Council. And I would argue that 
if we accept that threats to the peace can be general phenomena, then we must also accept that at the same time the answer to these general phenomena must also be general. Imagine that you, oh, say it the other way around. Nobody would have a problem with imposing sanctions on a particular terrorist organization under Article 41, freezing the funds of the Taliban, for example, or of Al-Qaeda. Now, what's the difference, basically, between freezing or ordering the freezing of funds of one particular terrorist organization or asking for the freezing of funds of all terrorist organizations, even of the ones that haven't been created yet, so that we take this more proactive approach. We don't have to wait for a new terrorist organization to be founded that the Security Council can act. No, the Security Council actually acts before this new organization is actually established. So the rules, the legal framework is already in place to deal with it. And I think the, the term measures is wide enough to also include these obligations of a general and abstract character. After all, if you look at Article 41, you will see that it says measures may include. So the list of measures in Article 41 is not exhaustive. There may be other measures. One of the measures under Article 41 was, for example, the establishment of the criminal tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, the establishment of the criminal tribunal for Rwanda. Both these, were, these actions were taken under chapter, uh, under chapter 7, Article 41, as measures. Now, what are the limits of Security Council legislation if you follow me on that and if you agree with states who have termed these measures legislation? I would like to put forward four possible limits. The first limit I would derive from the text of the Charter itself. Because the Security Council may only act in accordance with the Charter. And the member states are only required to carry out decisions of the Security Council taken in accordance with the Charter. So I would propose that whenever the Charter gives the Security Council only recommendatory powers, in these areas, the Security Council is precluded from enacting international legislation, which is by definition binding obligations. So wherever the, uh, the UN Charter speaks of recommendations, the Security Council may not legislate. To give you one example, in Article 26, of the Charter. The Charter speaks of disarmament. And it gives the Council recommendatory powers with regard to disarmament. Recommendatory powers only. That, in my view, excludes the Security Council coming up with binding obligations in the area of disarmament. Enacting international legislation prohibiting, for example, short- or long-range missiles. The next candidate for possible limitation is the principle of proportionality, which we lawyers really like, because it acts as a kind of corrective. A very outrageous view, which I hold as a lawyer, is that the Security Council is not bound by international law as such. But... It is bound by its charter, its founding document, and it's bound by the principle of proportionality, but not as a general principle of international law, but as a charter principle. If you look in Chapter 7, you will find the word necessary three times. So the council may only act if it is necessary. That's basically normally the terminology used for the principle of proportionality. So the Security Council cannot just enact legislation 
for everything, it can only enact legislation if it is really necessary. So one could term the Security Council a emergency legislator. It may only legislate if other areas of international lawmaking are not open to the international community or if it would take too long, for example, to come up with a new treaty dealing with the financing of terrorism. If we are faced with a terrorist threat, it might take years to come up with a new treaty dealing with it. In that case, the Security Council should be able to act. Some people have advanced the opinion that the Security Council may not enact legislation that touches on existing international treaties. The Security Council may not alter international treaties. So treaties would be another limitation to the Security Council's powers. Again, I disagree. If you look at the Charter, Article 103 of the UN Charter, where it says that decisions by the Security Council shall take precedence over existing treaty obligations of the member states. You, show, you, you see from this, and the International Court of Justice has basically confirmed that in the uh, terrorist bombing cases with regard to Lockerbie, council resolutions, council decisions may overrule existing international treaties. So by Security Council resolutions, we may see at least a de facto amendment to these treaties. The text of the treaties itself is not altered, but overall the obligations under the treaty are altered because next to the treaty we have a prevailing Security Council decision. Now, the next, the latest limitation to Security Council powers is use cogents, peremptory norms of international law from which no derogation is possible. And I think that's probably the, the new aspect I would like to introduce you to, because on your handout you'll find two cases that were recently decided by the European Court of Justice, Court of First Instance, where the European Court of Justice said with regard to UN sanctioning resolutions, the European Court of Justice can actually review not the resolutions itself, but the implementing European legislation and thereby indirectly test the international legal validity of Security Council resolutions. This opens a totally new avenue of judicial control of the Security Council. So this was spelled out in the Yusuf case of 2005. The European Court has now basically ruled that in a little bit and has limited that and had has said only if there are arbitrary infringements of rules of use cogents, we will actually declare invalid the implementing legislation of the European community. But think about it. If the European Court of Justice declares implementing legislation with regard to a Security Council resolution invalid, 25 important states in Europe will not be able to implement that Security Council resolution. So, in that case, probably other states will follow and the Security Council resolution will have no impact at all. Let me move on briefly to general problems of Security Council legislation. The first I want to highlight is the lack of clarity of terms. If you remember Resolution 1373, concerning the financing of terrorism, which was adopted unanimously, one problem that arises is, what do you mean by terrorism? Is your group a terrorist group? Is his group a terrorist group? Who decides? Interestingly enough, all states, even the Arab states, were able to report back to the Security Council that they had fully implemented that resolution. Adding as a little footnote, but of course, with our understanding of terrorism, meaning excluding the struggle for self-determination and fighting against alien domination 
by the Palestinians against Israel. So they, of course, are not seen as terrorists by some of these states. So if we have these kind of broad terms, which we necessarily have with regard to Security Council resolutions, because these are political compromise products, we will automatically have implementation problems, compliance problems, because the obligations imposed are too general. The next problem is that of timely implementation. The four resolutions I mentioned as examples of Security Council, resolu uh, Security Council legislation do not contain any time limit for implementation. And some states are dragging their feet. I've just seen a report dated the 21st of September 2006 where the chairman of the three terrorist committees of the anti-terrorist committees of the Security Council reported back to the Security Council that of the 192 member states of the, uh, of the United Nations, only 132 had supplied reports with regard to implementation of Resolution 1540. Resolution 1540 was adopted in April 2004 and contained a six-month reporting requirement. So two and a half years later, we still only have 130 states, basically two-thirds of the international community, reporting. Some of these reports just state that they still need more time implementing that. So it might be a rather weak tool in the armory of the Security Council just to come up with this legislation without backing it up with sanctions against the states not implementing that legislation. And often, of course, political, consideration may, political considerations may play a role because national parliaments are normally required to implement these resolutions. We are talking about general abstract obligations that will be imposed on the citizens of these states, not to finance terrorism, not to transport weapons of mass destruction. So you need national implementation legislation. The parliament is not involved. So for political reason, the opposition or your own party may actually object, may obstruct the adoption of the required implementation legislation for totally different reasons, not connected at all with the question of terrorism or proliferation of weapons of mass, mass destruction. Just for internal domestic political reasons, these legislative measures at the national level may be obstructed. Let me conclude so that we have some time for discussion. I think Security Council legislation is a new powerful instrument of the Security Council deal with the general threats we are faced these days. But the Council must be very careful not to lose its following if it employs this new tool. Because after all, as we have seen from the examples I have given to you, the Security Council does not follow up the implementation of these legislative measures. And it is not able to do so. Security Council legislation very much reminds me of the directives in European law. General framework decisions that must be implemented by the national parliaments of the member states. Now, the European community has 25 member states, and it has about 24,000 officials to monitor the implementation of European legislation. The various Security Council committees monitoring the wider membership of the UN just has some 50 members. So you see the discrepancy. You have like 24,000 officials monitoring 25 states, and on the other hand, you have just 50 members or 50 officials monitoring the implementation of legislation of 192 states. So to conclude, I think the Security Council has acted as a world legislator, and it 
will continue to do so, but it is well advised not to overstep the limits. Thank you. Okay. Starting with your second one, can I take each question at a time? I think uh, if states are aware that these are long-term issues, you have to do a lot more convincing. And this uh, reflects on the procedures involved uh, adopting these kind of legislative acts. Uh, the Security Council is normally a very secretive body which decides on its measures in consultations of the whole, in the kind of back chamber, then they come out for five minutes, vote for the resolution, and that's it. So you don't know much about it. With regard to these uh, legislative resolutions, that I may call them, after Resolution 1373, there was a, a lot of objection by states about this secretive procedure. And the Security Council took that on board, and with regard to Resolution 1540, for example, we have seen the widest possible consultation ever in Security Council history. All drafts were made basically available to the various regional groupings for discussions, just to not lose anybody on the way of adopting these uh, resolutions. And there was also a lot of input that was taken into account, input from non-members of the Security Council that was taken on board by the Security Council. So it has an effect on the making of these resolutions. Whereas you will have sanctions resolutions that are still made in the back chamber, imposing of an arms embargo or whatever, these kind of legislative resolutions require more participation on the part of all member states. And you could make a legal case for this. Under Article 36 of the UN Charter, if I'm not mistaken, all states that have an interest in a measure taken by the Security Council have a right to be heard before the Council. So you could interpret this as a right of participation in legislative resolutions because these resolutions have an effect on everybody. So everybody should be able to be heard, should be able to raise its voice in the lawmaking process. Your first question, why legislator? and not legislature. It's simple because it makes a more sexy title to call it a legislator than to call it a legislature. So I see the Security Council not as a parliamentary body compared to a national parliament making legislation, but as this single organ that adopts laws binding on the membership. So I see it kind of as a legal entity, not as a consultative body of 15 member states. Because, of course, I think the uh, comparison to a legislature is misguided because these states on the council, at least the permanent five, represent nobody. They have no kind of democratic mandate, no legitimacy in that sense. So I think it, it's not quite correct to talk about those as if they were a national legislature. Well, although, I mean, legislatures vary around the world in terms of how democratic mm. they, they would look. Um, so, but, but it sounds like you're, you're not just doing it because it sounds sexy. You're actually depending on some of the 
Yeah. Because, of course, the people or the states that have tried to use or to employ the Security Council as a legislature have a certain understanding of a legislature uh, in their national politics because the whole thing is an idea of the Western powers of the United States, the United Kingdom at the time, Germany, a member of the Security Council, who actually consciously decided that this is the way forward, that we try out to use the Security Council as this new lawmaking body. Yes, please. Um, mm, the, probably the first, yes. The second, two, no, because of the veto power of the permanent members. Well, that's, a that's, a, that's a practical question. Um, if, 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 you, if you get the, 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 the necessary votes, why not? If, if someone, uh, as a leader, would engage in aggressive wars, aggressive tactics, so he himself or she herself might be seen as a threat to the peace. I think we have seen a considerable development over the last uh, decade or the last 15 to 20 years as far as a threat to international peace is concerned. So why not an individual, the dictator? Why shouldn't he or she be seen as a threat to the peace? We have, we have individual targeted sanctions so we are targeting individuals who we see as violators of international law. That's all what it is about smart sanctions. It's no longer that we target the state, the community. We target individuals. So they are in some way seen as perpetrators, as threats. So as a, as a next step, I, I wouldn't rule that out. Um, of course, again, we, 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 see, we see a wider understanding of, of, of peace and security. And, of course, we have the, the, the notion of a responsibility to protect these days. So that uh, I don't think that we need a transporter element these days to actually make someone a threat to the peace. If you create horrible enough circumstances within your country, you might be seen as a threat to the peace just because of the refugee flows or other destabilizations of a certain region. I think the Security Council has here a very wide discretion. If enforcement, then again only enforcement through the Security Council. That would be the logical next step. You impose obligations to enact legislation, then legislation is either not enacted or it is not implemented. The Security Council may take that as a violation of its earlier resolution. All these resolutions are, after all, taken under Chapter 7 of the UN Charter, and normally the last sentence says that the Security Council decides to remain seized of this matter. So the Security Council may come back and may revisit that. And if you would have one persistent violator of these resolutions, uh, this state might be singled out and enforcement action may be taken against that state. But it would not be taken before a court, no. So, and, and again, my, my analogy between uh, 
directives and Security Council resolutions enacting or concerning international legislation is more about the nature of the act, the more general act, that it just provides a framework that has to be filled in by the national legislatures. So it, it, it's not a law which you transform one-to-one -one into domestic law. You have uh, an area of discretion again, because this must necessarily be the case. We have 192 member states, and we have a wide variety of legal systems. So implementation in all these legal systems might work differently from system to system. So we cannot basically come up with this one uniform law by the Security Council that that's just passed on to be implemented by the, by the member states. You have to leave the member states with a certain amount of discretion how to implement the law. And therefore, the laws are more general. And that was my analogy to directives in European community law. Rick. Mm -hmm. was two parties yep. in terms of compliance. So I'm curious what your views are on the member states' rights, so to speak, mm -hmm. to impose more specific definition and impose timing constraints if they so choose in the name of enforcement. Mm -hmm. I think with regard to uh, imposing definitions, that probably is, is, is rather difficult because, for example, the um, case of terrorism is one in point where there is general disagreement amongst the international community. So it would be very difficult for some Western states to try to impose their definition of terrorism on the international community because it is widely accepted that there is disagreement uh, on the definition. Uh, with regard to enforcement, that is a very interesting point you raised because uh, I think states, member states, have learned their lesson from the practice of some uh, permanent members by suddenly coming up with this kind of implicit enforcement powers in a resolution. In, with regard to 1540, uh, several states in the discussion, in the debate leading up to the uh, adoption of the resolution expressly questioned the permanent members of the Security Council with regard to enforcement. And uh, for example, the United States, but also other permanent members expressly confirmed that there would be no enforcement powers coming with these resolutions. So basically, the, the ordinary member states try to preempt that by raising this question in the debate. So I think it would be very difficult uh, for uh, individual states to use these resolutions as a kind of authorization to use enforcement measures. Yes, please. I don't quite get the link to uh, responsibility at the beginning. <laughs> That's the $30,000 question, I think they say in the U.S. If, if, I, if I probably knew that, I would become a consultant to the next UN Secretary General uh, to overcome that. But uh, why don't we see it as something positive? You have portrayed it as something negative, this kind of 
political interests that play a role in the decision-making of the Security Council? Why couldn't we say the Security Council is taking such important decisions that we want actually the five permanent members or at least the, the required majority of all members to really be present so that we have the international support for these decisions? And, of course, uh, all these decisions are compromised decisions. They are an amalgam of various interests of the members of the Security Council. I would actually say it's a positive thing that uh, some states sometimes have different interests with regard to the use of force because we might not necessarily want to see the use of force every day. So there is, it's, it's a kind of corrective mechanism that was originally envisaged by the drafters. It's a kind of checks and balances. If you want to take the really serious decisions, the hard decisions in international politics, in international law, you have to have the major powers on board. Now, you could say one problem the Security Council suffers today is that not all the major powers are on board and that it largely reflects uh, the end of the Second World War and we have moved on. Uh, but still, it's a kind of least common denominator that acts as a kind of uh, corrective mechanism it also impedes, of course, the Security Council acting when some member states, for their interests, might like to act. So, of course, you could say, oh, we accuse, for example, China for having huge petroleum interests uh, in Sudan and therefore vetoing or threatening to veto any possible uh, resolution. But, of course, we might also ask, what are the interests of the states pressing for such a resolution? So there are interests on both sides. So they, perhaps they, they have to even them out uh, to come to the least common denominator. This is often very unsatisfactory, but it's also a kind of corrective mechanism for just some states always getting their way. Mm. Um, I think at the moment the two major topics are, of course, terrorism and the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction. And we have seen one further resolution which I didn't mention today, which is Resolution 1624, uh, which called upon all states to criminalize the incitement of terrorism. The, the, the reason why I didn't mention 1624 is that it was not adopted under uh, Chapter 7. It was not obligatory. So, and that perhaps may be the first sign that the Security Council becomes more careful and not using this tool too often because otherwise he might, it might lose the support of its wider following. I have uh, stated somewhere else that I can see uh, questions of the environment as possible uh, areas where the Security Council could actually legislate. Uh, we might think about uh, migration, refugee flows, which uh, are probably open to general treatment so that we have general rules that may be imposed. But of course, if you had asked an international lawyer 10 years ago about Security Council legislation, everybody would have said, no, no, impossible. The states are the legislators. Uh, this has to be all based on consent, and we cannot have a, a group of 15 doing that. Now, it's becoming more and more accepted that terrorism, nuclear non-proliferation are areas where the Security Council can act. So perhaps 10 years down the line, uh, environmental issues, uh, migration issues might rise to such a prominence that the Security Council actually is called again to act as this kind of single-issue emergency legislator to prevent threats to international peace and security.
Mm, that, that, that's right. Either because there is a general development and actually you take the development and take the lead in that development. That might be one scenario. But we might also have a scenario where an event which we can't think of at the moment triggers a reaction uh, of the security council. Think about September 11th. Uh, at the time of September 11th, we had four parties to the financing of terrorism convention, which was uh, adopted uh, in 1999. So in two years, all we got was four ratifications of that treaty. With kind of one stroke, you could say the Security Council made 50-60% of this treaty obligatory for all member states because one said one cannot wait until the last country finally gets round to ratify the financing of terrorism convention. We have basically uh, to cut the financial means of the terrorists now. We cannot wait another 10 years until finally Liechtenstein, uh, with its banking law, has decided that it has to do something about it. Huh? Yes, please. Because the Security Council, if it acts under Chapter 7, if it adopts a decision under Chapter 7, this is binding law for the member states of the UN. The difference is, and that's where implementation comes in, that the decision of the Council only binds the member state. So it doesn't bind us. So if the Security Council comes up with a resolution criminalizing or calling on states to criminalize the financing of terrorism, then the states are under an obligation to criminalize the financing of terrorism. It does not mean that the financing of terrorism becomes a criminal act per se. We need this action by the member states in between. So they have to transform the command by the Security Council down to the individual. So in that respect, there is a difference because if you have a national legislator, this becomes law and becomes immediately applicable to the individuals that are subject to that legal system. But you could say the legal system we are talking about is the legal system of states, and the states are subjected to these general abstract obligations which the Security Council imposes. And of course, the states have signed up to the UN Charter and in Article 25, they have promised to carry out the decisions of the Security Council adopted in accordance with the Charter. So they are bound by these decisions. More questions? Yep, one more. We traced the history a little bit. How much of this is because of the end of the Cold War? The, no, the, the legislation basically started on uh, September 13th, 2001. And there were no traces of that before. As I said, the perceived wisdom was there is... Yeah, but that was only about the kind of interpretation of threats to the peace. There you are right. With the end of the Cold War, the Security Council became a more proactive actor and again, as the colleague here has mentioned, for the interests or for, for, for because of interests of various uh, Security Council members, this notion of threat to the peace was extended. Because if you think about five, six hundred boat people, they neither constitute a threat to the United States of America, nor do they constitute a threat to international peace and security. At that time, this was for the United States to convince other states to go along with that. And that was probably a price paid by the United States for the other states agreeing to that. Again, if you look at Somalia, a failed state, generally we could say this affected just Somalia. There was no trans-border implica implication. But still, the Security Council at the time found 
this situation in Somalia constitutes a threat to international peace and security. So this, you could say, if you look at it in a negative way, the concept of international peace and security has been eroded more and more. Uh, you, probably things we didn't imagine some 20 years ago are now generally accepted as threats to international peace and security. Some environmental practices, which at the moment nobody considers a threat to international peace and security, might perhaps in 10 or 15 years' time seen as a threat to international peace and security. As I said, we are moving from a more formal understanding of threats to the peace to a, to a kind of substantive threat to the peace. And, 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 of course, that's open for interpretation. But, of course, you're right. This all was made possible by the end of the Cold War, by the end of the, the kind of block confrontation. Because before that, you would just have objected to the suggestions of the other side on, on, on kind of the general principle that it's the other side. Now probably you were more open to negotiation to hear the other side uh, state its case, and probably also uh, you were probably more open to, to name the price. Because uh, I think in, in, if you look at it kind of in a disillusioned way, uh, some of these resolutions, of course, uh, come about for a, uh, in a in a process of bargaining. So you could say um, perhaps we might accept and not press, for example, for a resolution with regard to Sudan. Uh, but what do you give us the next time we need a Security Council resolution? There, there is definitely bargaining going on behind the scenes here. All right, thank you. Thank you very much for a very interesting talk. I want to uh, mention while I have your attention one last second that on Thursday, Ann Tickner, who is the author of Gender and International Relations and president of the International Studies Association, will be here. And I invite you all to be there for her. Thank you all.